Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Covering a counterfeit grace. And, you know, when you look at counterfeits, one of the greatest threats to the U.S. economy or the, the Western economy today is counterfeiting. And this is an article from, I think it's Time Magazine, and it says, name an American brand, any brand, and any kind of product, clothing, computer chips, car parts, just name it, and we'll tell you something about it. It's probably being counterfeited in China as we speak. So any brand at all, clothing, technology, anything, it's all being counterfeited in China. For years, China has been the workshop of the world. And for years, America and other Western firms have set up shop in China to tap into the enormous cheap labor force. The question is, once the Chinese how to know, know how to make an American product, what's to stop them from copying it? So in other words, let's say Apple, they take advantage of the cheap labor in China and show them how to make the iPad. And then once they've figured out how to make this for Apple, what prevents them from counterfeiting it and making their own, their own version of it? 60 Minutes, well, the answer is nothing at all. 60 Minutes found, the, the show 60 Minutes, found a corner shop in Dongwon, China, selling clubs by Callaway. So if you're a golfer, um, Callaway is a very uh, prestigious brand. So they found this um, shop, a corner shop, selling golf clubs by Callaway, the American manufacturer of the famous Great Big Bertha driver. The Chinese government did not want 60 Minutes to bring our cameras, so we did undercover. Inside we saw a club that, not, that looked and felt like the great Big Bertha. Not only that, we were offered Callaway irons, putters, golf bags, gloves, and even a Callaway umbrella. So they had the whole Callaway kit. This would normally retail for close to $3,000. They got it for $275. He says, this is the most profitable criminal venture, as far as I know on earth, counterfeiting. China is the undisputed capital of counterfeiting. On the day that Callaway Golf releases a new club, they can purchase one, so the Chinese can purchase it, and within seven days, using computer-assisted design and their modern facilities, they can begin cranking out counterfeits. The Chinese authorities insist that they're, re that they're working on the problem and that they are sensitive to American concerns. But 60 Minutes thought about that as we strolled down what's called Silk Alley in Beijing, where you can buy everything except the real thing. So there's this alley, there's this place in China where everything is for sale, and it's all counterfeit. Since this last report, now here's the thing. So they can, they can counterfeit everything. And it says here, since this report last January, children from an eastern Chinese city have died after being fed counterfeit baby formula. So they can counterfeit everything, and now they're counterfeiting baby formula 
they're counterfeiting medicine, and they're counterfeiting things that are killing people because it looks like the real thing, and people think it's the real thing. Now, if preaching doctrine was profitable, they'd be counterfeiting that as well. Uh, But there is such a thing as counterfeit doctrine, and the same way that we can consume food that is poisonous physically, counterfeit doctrine is spiritually poisonous. And this topic of grace, God's grace, has been counterfeited. And we need to be on guard. There is a a pastor here called Dr. Ralph Yankee Arnold. And in his statement of faith, which is common to a lot of the Christian community, they have this point. It's called eternal security. This is their definition of God's grace. He says this, We believe that once a person becomes a child of God by faith in Christ, he is always a child of God. A person is either saved forever or not saved at all. So once you become a child of God, you're saved forever or you're not saved at all. This is their doctrine. Eternal security is not a separate doctrine from salvation. It is salvation. Once a person is saved, he can never lose his salvation in any way for any reason. Is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? Or is this a counterfeit of grace? He says this in a sermon. What if I sin tomorrow? It's a sin. Hello there. Come on in. Join us. No, you're in the right place. What are you looking for? Oh, you know what? The coffee shop is next door, but you could work up an appetite here. (laughs) Yeah, it's right next door. Thanks. Oh, well, she'll be back. (laughs) Um, So he says this in a sermon, saying to his congregants, what if I sin tomorrow? It's a sin, and it's paid. What if I sin right before I die? It's a sin. It's paid. But you don't deserve it. That's the point. Grace means you don't deserve it. Now, on that point, I'll agree. Grace is unmerited favor. That's what grace is. That we receive favor from God, and we've done nothing to deserve it. That is true. But is it true to say that once we obtain the grace of God, we can never lose it. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. To see the the foundation for this doctrine, Ephesians 2, and verse 8 says, For grace are you saved through faith. So by grace we're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. So there's nothing that we did to obtain salvation. It's by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so this is the foundation of the doctrine once saved, always saved, that there's nothing that we can do 
to obtain salvation. Salvation does not come by works. It comes by grace, through faith. And also, if you'll go to Romans 11... Romans 11, and verse 6, speaking of salvation, and if by grace, then is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. In other words, if salvation comes to us by grace, works have nothing to do with it. If works have something to do with it, then it's not grace. Grace is unmerited favor. But if it be of works, then, it, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. So it's these doctrines or these scriptures, scriptures like this, that form the basis of the doctrine, once saved, always saved. The question we have is, is this true? Is this truly what the Bible teaches? Now, there is a, a sermon by Van Stinson entitled Counterfeit Grace, and I would encourage you to go on to uh, cgi.org and, and listen to this sermon. He does a, an excellent job. Of, of outlining what this doctrine is and, and what the biblical perspective is. I'm going to take a slightly different angle, but I do want to borrow a couple of quotes from his sermon. He quotes a gentleman named Clark Witten, Clark Witten, who has written a book called Pure Grace, The Life-Changing Power of Uncontaminated Grace. Pure Grace, The Life-Changing Power of Uncontaminated Grace. And in this book he says this, Christians are way too conscious of sin and way too unconscious of God's grace. Jesus did not die to modify your behavior. So this is this book, Pure Grace. What he wants us to understand is that Christ did not die to change our behavior. That's got nothing to do with it. Because this is pure grace, our behavior is our behavior. Christ died so that we could obtain salvation, but not to change our behavior. Contrary to popular religious opinion, God is not angry toward me and never will be. Not in the least. My bad works don't move God any more than my good works move him. He simply isn't moved by works of any kind. So, Christ came, sacrificed himself. That's our propitiation. That that if God was angry at sin, his anger was relieved by Christ's sacrifice. Now we have grace and we can live in sin. Because once saved, always saved. And in fact, if we try to do good works, that doesn't move God. It doesn't impact God in any way. And if we do evil works... That doesn't move God either. God is not moved one way or the other. I hope you recognize the sentiment behind this. I hope you recognize the Greek philosophy in this. That when we studied Hebrews earlier, we we looked into the Greek philosophers, and in particular Aristotle. And Aristotle had a teaching that he called the unmoved mover that God was the unmoved mover. 
In other words, God was so perfect that he could not have anything to do with the material world. And it says this in Wikipedia. Aristotle describes the unmoved mover as being perfectly beautiful, indivisible, and contemplating only the perfect contemplation. That is, it's self-contemplating. So Christ said that God was thought, thinking about itself, thinking. Because if it was anything less than that, he would be less than perfect. That God is unchangeable. That if he changes in any way, he's not perfect. So he has to be completely unchangeable. And that's why he's called the unmoved mover. He's the one that initiates everything, but he does not change in any way. And that's what this doctrine is saying. That there's nothing we can do that can change the unmoved mover. It's Greek philosophy. And that's why we have this notion of heaven. That we have this spirit, this immortal soul, trapped inside a physical body. The body is evil. The soul is perfect. But the soul is trapped. So when we die, the soul is released from this imperfect material body. And it goes back to the unmoved mover. And that's heaven. So in heaven, we do nothing. We we join the force. And we become thought, thinking about itself, thinking. And that's the perfection. So, of course, what we do here doesn't matter. Because the soul will be released and go back to heaven. What does the Bible, what does the God of Israel say? Come with me to Revelation 2. Can we really say that God is the unmoved mover? My bad works do not move God any more than my good works move him. He simply isn't moved by works of any kind. Okay. Let's compare that to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, and we'll just pick up one of the letters to one of the churches. And that's in verse 18, the church at Thyatira. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write... These things say the Son of God. This is the same Son of God, Christ, who sacrificed himself for us. These are the, this is what he has to say. Who has his eyes like flames of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know what? Your works. So we're saying God cannot be moved by our works. Whether we do good or evil, it doesn't matter. I know your works and your charity, and service, and faith, and your patience, and, oh yes, your works. I know your works, and I know your works. Let's talk about your works. In case you missed it, let's talk about your works. I'm going to repeat it. And the last, to be more than the first. So I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that your last works are more than your first. However, I have a few things against you. And what do I have against you? Your works. Because you suffer that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit works of fornication, of eating things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she didn't repent. So am I going to be moved by this? Yes, I am. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. This is Christ speaking. 
So you're going to say, I, I can commit adultery, I can commit fornication with this Jezebel, and my evil works will not move God. Oh, yeah? What he says here is, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her, into great tribulation, unless they repent of what? Their works. I am impacted by what you do. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. This is Christ. This is, my, my Bible has this in red, saying this is Christ speaking. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden, but that which you already hold fast till I come. That which you have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcomes and keeps my works, emphasis again, speaking to the church, keep my works unto the end. So you've got to overcome, and you've got to keep the works right up to the end. If you keep the works most of the way, but you don't make it to the end, that's not good enough. It's not once saved, always saved. It's, it's once saved, hold on until the end, and keep my works until the end. He that overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him. Now this is it. So it's not that you have this immortal soul, and when you die, the soul leaves the body, and it goes to heaven where you do nothing. You become thought, thinking about itself, thinking. No, you're here on earth, and, and we have work to do. So, I'm going to give you power over the nations. There's a great reformation coming, and you will have power over all the nations to help me reform the nations, to change their works. So, are you going to say that you can be evil? You can have evil character? and then join forces with me to reform the evil in the world? This, this is illogical. If you overcome your evil, you become like me. Then you can join me in stamping out evil in the world. You're not going to heaven where you do nothing. I'm coming to earth where we will work together to reform the world. I will give him power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Are you going to be an evil character? And I'm going to give you a rod of iron? Or are you going to be like me and know how to use a rod of iron? As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. So I think, brethren, the, the confusion here that these Christians have, the Christian community has, is the definition of grace. They will define grace as the, if you hear this term, the finished work of Christ. I don't know if you ever hear that terminology, the finished work of Christ. That's how they define grace. In other words, Christ did all the work. He was slaughtered. He was crucified. And it's done. It's all done now. So we don't have anything to do because Christ did it all. That's how they define grace. That's not biblical definition of grace. And so they'll say salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. I say, okay, that, it sounds familiar. I've heard that a lot. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. So I thought, okay, let me, let me do a search and find this scripture. Because I hear it so often. It must be in the Bible. 
Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And I couldn't find it. So I said, well, find grace and alone. That must be in the scripture. There's nowhere, there's not a single verse in the Bible where grace and alone appear in the same verse. So yes, salvation is by grace, but nowhere does the Bible say grace alone. Then I said, okay, what about faith alone? Let me search for faith alone. There's only one verse in the Bible where faith and alone are together. And that's in James. Let's go to James 2. This is the only verse in the Bible where faith and alone are together. James 2, verse 17. And it says, Even so faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. So you're going to tell me that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And if I have faith alone, the Bible is telling me my faith is dead. So, so this foundational doctrine that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, it's got nothing to do with the Bible. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It sounds biblical, but it doesn't come from the Bible. And in fact, I'll go further. Not only, not only does it not come from the Bible, I'll go further and say this is an incredibly evil doctrine. It's not just unbiblical. It is evil. It is an evil doctrine. We have to expunge this doctrine from our minds. We have to expunge it from the church. I don't know what you do in your private life. You don't know what I do in my private life. But if as as a minister I say to you, hey, once saved, always saved, what I'm really saying is, what you do in your private life doesn't matter. Knock yourself out. Because once saved, always saved. And if you hear that from a minister of God, that's a false minister. That's a false minister. What you do in your private life does matter. You need to be overcoming. You need to be building the character of God. I need to be building the character of God. This is an evil doctrine. We have any church of any size has adulterers. Any church of any size has idolaters. Any church of any size has thieves, homosexuals. It's the pastor's job to encourage us to repent, to turn away from all of that. Such were some of you. We have to repent. We have to turn away from from all of that. Now, let me take this to the extreme. I'm going to show you just how evil this doctrine is. This, This comes right out of the mind of the devil. This is, this, we're, we're dabbling with evil, evil doctrine here. Let me take it to the extreme. August 8, 2009. Once saved, always saved. Deacon says killer rests in heaven. George Sodini rests in heaven now because he professed the faith in Jesus Years before his shooting rampage, a Tetelestai Christian church leader said, Jack Rickard, a deacon at the Plum Church, Sodini attended for years, said the Bible makes it clear that professing a faith in Jesus as Savior means you will have complete eternal salvation. 
Rickard, who's 80, of Indiana, Pennsylvania, said Tetelestai members are firm believers in once saved, always saved. He said the church, which is in process of moving to New Kensington, focuses on the intense study of scripture. Rickard conveyed his belief that Sodini attained eternal life. George is going to heaven, but he's not going to get his rewards, Rickard said. He said that Sodini won't be offered all of heaven's benefits because of his sin. But once saved, always saved. He just won't get all the rewards. George was a professing believer, Rickard said. Shortly after 8 p.m. on Tuesday, Sodini walked into the L.A. Fitness Center. So we have a fitness center right here next door. It would be just like that. Just after 8 p.m., he walked in at Great Southern Shopping Center in Collier and opened fire in an aerobics room filled with women. So usually they have a room that's just for women to work out. He hated women. He, he found he could never get dates. He was a handsome man. For some reason, women didn't like him, and he just became upset. Went into the gym, went into the area where the women are working out, and opened fire on the women. In addition to killing three of the women, he, he wounded nine others before killing himself. So Dini wrote in his online diary that the pastor at Tetelestai convinced him it was possible to commit mass murder and still be welcomed into heaven. The pastor was preaching once saved, always saved, and he sat there and he thought, wow, I can do this. I can, I can commit mass murder and I can still be in heaven. The pastor was so convincing with this doctrine of once saved, always saved, So he wrote in his diary, I'm convinced I can commit mass murder and I'll still be welcomed into heaven. In his blog, Sodini alleged that the Reverend Alan Rick Knapp, so so Rickard is the deacon, Knapp is the pastor, taught Tetelestai members that committing such a crime could be forgiven. And then this is what he writes, this is what Sodini writes in his diary. Holy expletive, Religion is a waste. But this guy teaches and convinced me you can commit mass murder and then still go to heaven. Ask him, Sodini wrote. After the shootings, Knapp went to the Oakmont police station, Knapp is the reverend, where he told the chief, David Sedanti, that the church does not condone these actions. The deacon said, that he knew Sodini fairly well and never thought Sodini would commit such an act. I saw no traits like that in him, except that he was a little quiet. Rickard said he socialized with Sodini on several occasions. The two had beers together, and Sodini ate dinner at Rickard's home at least once. But, Rickard indicated, that Sodini caused some trouble at the church, but declined to offer specifics. So it goes on to say that he left the church. So this church has about 400 members, and the name Tetelestai comes from the Greek word, which is translated, it is finished. So this is the finished work of Christ. So this church is all about Christ did it all. We can now live as we please, because once saved, always saved. And the pe- so, so this member committed mass murder. I don't know what the other members were doing. But the pastor gave them a license to sin. 
So they, who knows, thieves, adulterers, fornicators, liars, murderers, mass murderers. Because, hey, once saved, always saved. Turn with me, brethren, to Zephaniah. As you're turning there, just remember the words of Clark Whitten in Pure Grace, the life-changing power of uncontaminated grace. God is not angry toward me and never will be, not in the least. My bad works don't move God any more than my good works move him. He simply isn't moved by works of any kind. Once saved, always saved. Look at Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 12. And it shall come to pass at that time that I, God, will search Jerusalem with candles. I'm going to do a thorough search of Jerusalem. And I will punish the men that are settled on their lees that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. He's not moved. He's not, whether I do good, God's not going to do good. And if I do evil, God's not going to do anything. He's not moved by my good works or my bad works. Oh, yeah? I will search through Jerusalem with be thorough, and I will find every single one of them that says that I won't do anything, that I can't be moved, and I will punish them. Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7. And verse 1, this is speaking to Judah, coming to uh, Jeremiah. The word that came to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7, verse 1, from the Lord. This is the word from the Lord to Jeremiah saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So, so here we are in Jerusalem, and this is the temple. And God is saying to Jerusalem, my people are coming to the temple to worship me. I need you to intercept them. There's going to be somebody preaching in the temple, and they're coming to gather to worship me in the temple. I need you to intercept them. So stand at the gate, and on the way in, give them this message from me. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all of you of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. So I'm speaking to God's people here. To all of you, my people, my covenant people who are coming to worship me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings. Your works matter to me. Change, repent, amend your ways and your doings. And if you do that, then I will cause you to dwell in this place. It's not a free ride. You can dwell here on the condition that you amend your ways. Trust you not in lying words. 
So I know you're on your way in, and Adrian's preaching today, and he's going to be preaching a doctrine that sounds like this. Once saved, always saved. But Jeremiah is intercepting you on the way in, and he's saying, don't listen to that liar. Don't trust in those lying words. Saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. You are the temple. This is the temple. The temple can never be destroyed. The temple is a forever temple. Oh, yeah? Really? So because the temple is a forever temple, you have a license to do evil. And I will not be moved either good or bad? Really? Okay. Jeremiah, intercept them on their way to worship and give them this message and tell them it's from me. We could say here, the church, the church, the church. Once saved, always saved. We're the church. For if you thoroughly amend your ways, verse 5, and your doings, your works, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, your character, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers, forever and ever. Yes, it is a forever temple, conditionally, on this condition. Behold, you trust in lying words. There are liars speaking to you, and you're trusting these liars. You trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, walk after other gods who you don't know, and, and then come and stand before me in this house and say, once saved, always saved? Is that, is, that, is that how you think this relationship works? I extend my grace toward you. I bless you. I give you all these blessings. And then you commit adultery and fornication and steal and lie and commit murder and mass murder. And you think that's okay with me? And come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, once saved, always saved. We're, we're delivered to do all these abominations. Is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, says the Lord. But go you now. Okay, here, here's what I want you to do. Rather than worship here today, let's take a field trip. And let's all go to Shiloh. Go you now unto my place, which was in Shiloh. So before I moved my place to Jerusalem, we worshipped in Shiloh, remember? Let's go back to Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, I spoke unto you, rising up early and speaking, but you didn't hear, and I called you, but you answered not. Therefore, will I do unto this house in Jerusalem, the forever temple. This is the temple that's forever. Let's go to Shiloh, see what I did there, and now let's talk about what I'm going to do here. Therefore, will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein you trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. So it's no different, brethren. They thought... Once saved, always saved. Hey, we're the covenant people. We're, we're in this covenant relationship with God. We are blessed. We have grace. 
and we are delivered to do all this evil. And God's saying, you don't understand. You don't, uh, we, remember you used to worship me in Shiloh? And you thought that was forever? Go and look what I did there, because that's what I'm going to do here. And Jerusalem was destroyed. And so the same way he's saying to Judah, look back, he's saying to us today, yeah, you're my covenant people. Take a field trip. Go through the pages of the Bible and see if I'm not consistent. When people do evil, can they have a relationship with me? No. I destroy them. And just because you're called by my name, don't think that you have a license to do evil. You don't. Galatians 5. Galatians 5 and verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. So the flesh has works. Here they are. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, and we would include mass murders in there, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. So all of these are the works of the flesh. Now, do they matter? If we engage in this kind of behavior as, as redeemed Christians, Christians under grace, does it matter? Is God moved by our works one way or the other? Okay, well, all this type of, type of works, of the which I tell you before, as I have to also told you in the past, I've told you time and time again. Galatian Christians, come on. Come on. I've told you this before, and I'm still seeing the same behavior. You think God is not moved by your behavior? I'm going to tell you again. I've told you in time past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is on earth. The kingdom of God is comprised of kings who will reign on earth. We will be doing something on earth. We will be leading reformation. It's not about having an immortal soul that goes to heaven and does nothing. We have to have the character of Christ to fulfill the mission of Christ on earth. And they which do such things, I've told you before, I'm warning you, you're not once saved, always saved. I'm warning you, if you continue in these behaviors, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think, brethren, that what the Christian community is confusing, and, and Pastor Stinson brings this out very well in his sermon, Counterfeit Grace, is they're confusing causality with conditions. Causality versus conditions. And let me give you an example of this. Danny Cox, the head of financial planning at Hargreaves Lansdowne, says that the Prince, Prince Harry's inheritance could have as much as doubled to 13 million pounds, depending on how the money was invested. So in other words, that's around $30 million. 
when his mother, Princess Diana, died, she left him an inheritance. It was her grace. He did nothing to earn it. He actually earns a salary. I I believe he's a a pilot. And he earns a salary as a a pilot in the military of about, I think it's about 70,000 pounds a year. That's his earnings. He, he, He works and he gets paid. And if they don't pay him, he has every right to say, hey, wait a minute, where's my paycheck? This inheritance, he did nothing to earn it. About $30 million. But there was a condition. At the time she left it for him, I think it was about four million pounds. And it was invested and he couldn't touch it. And it, was been, it has been growing and growing. The, well, the, the value of it has been growing over all these years. Now he has access to it. Why? Because he satisfied a condition that she left in her will. What was the condition? That he has to turn 30. That giving it to him as a young man, he, he couldn't handle it. So he would just spend all the money. So she knew by 30, there's a level of maturity that will kick in. So the money was his. He didn't earn it, but there was a condition. And that is that he turns 30. As on, the, on his birthday, that money was released to him. He now has access to the money. So turning 30 didn't cause him to inherit the money. It's not, it's not a cause but it was a condition that had to be satisfied for him to inherit the money. So we understand the difference between causality versus condition. So we are told to repent. Once we repent and accept Christ, that's not good enough. That does not obtain salvation. There are conditions, one of which is we must be baptized. We must be baptized. That is a, doesn't cause our salvation, but it is a necessary condition. We must have the laying on of hands, and then we must endure to the end to be saved. If, if Harry did not turn 30, he would never inherit this money. He could be 29 and 364 days old, and then he drops dead, and he would never touch the money because he didn't satisfy the condition. We can be running this race right up to the day before our death. And on the day before our death, we drop out. And I'm sorry, we lose out. We have to endure until the end. That's one of the conditions. So, is this about legalism versus grace? And that's what they would have us believe. That they're all about grace. They understand the grace, the finished work of Christ. We're legalists. Really? Let's unpack this. They would say, Old Covenant, you're a legalist. New Covenant is about grace. So let's just take a moment and understand what do we mean when we say, when we, what do we mean when we talk about covenants? Okay. Turn with me to Genesis 12. So we define grace, the the Greek word is charis, and we define it as the free and unmerited favor of God. We we did nothing to earn it. God, God just decided he would bless us. That's grace. It's unmerited favor. Okay. Let's let's look at the covenants. The first covenant is Genesis 12, verse 1. 
Now you tell me, is this law or is this grace? What is the foundation of this covenant? Grace means unmerited favor. You did nothing to earn it. God just blesses you with favor. And law is, you understand the law, you keep the law, and you're blessed for keeping the law. Okay. Genesis 1, Genesis 12, verse 1. Is this grace or is this law? Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of the country and from your kindred and from your father's house unto a land that I will show you. So God just chose this man, Abram, and said, Leave this, this land and go to, go to where I show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you, and curse him that curses you, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So, so what is it that Abraham did to earn this? Or doesn't the scripture say that he had no works, that it was through faith he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That even, even before circumcision, he was blessed by God. Circumcision came, the works came after. The foundation of the Abrahamic covenant is God's grace. From there we go to the Mosaic covenant, Exodus 19. <clears throat> so what we see is the, the foundational covenant is God's covenant agreement with a man named Abram, later Abraham. So it's a personal covenant. Now we come to the Mosaic covenant, which is now a national covenant. God is making a covenant with the whole nation. Exodus 19 and verse 1. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, and, and the question is, is this based on law? Or is this based on grace? Did, did God make this covenant with Israel because something they did to earn his favor? Or was it unmerited favor? The same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness. And there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God. And the Lord God called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. So this is a national covenant. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. I would say that that's unmerited favor. You were oppressed by the Egyptians. There's nothing that you did to impress me. But I extended my mercy to you. I extended my grace. And I relieved you of that oppression, and I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. So you cannot have a relationship with God without grace. God is the one who chose Abraham. God is the one who chose Israel. God is the one who chose us. We didn't choose him. Every relationship with God begins with grace. There's not a single person on the planet that somehow was obeying law for God to say, I'm obligated now. To, oh, I didn't want to bless this person, but look, oh look, he's obeying the law. I have to bless him. Not a single person. Every relationship with God, the foundation is grace. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, so if you will be faithful to the covenant, 
Then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel. So the same way that God says to Abraham, you did nothing to deserve this, but but I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Now he says to the nation of Israel, you've done nothing to deserve this. You were weak and pathetic, but I brought you to myself. And if you'll be faithful to the covenant agreement that I make with you, the whole world will be blessed through you. You'll become a peculiar people. Now we have the Davidic covenant. Turn with me to Jeremiah 33. And for our young people, I meant to actually um, share this with you in our summary study when um, the disciples were asking Christ, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom? Uh, This is what they were referring to, the, the Davidic covenant. Jeremiah 33 And verse 17, for thus says the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. So this is, this is God's grace now to David. David didn't do anything that obeyed the law that God was now obligated to bless him. God's grace. David will never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to kindle meat offerings, and to do sacrifice continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, that there should not be day and night in their season, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne, and with the Levites the priests my ministers." As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so I will multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites that minister unto me. So this is now the forever throne. We had a forever temple. Now we have a forever throne by God's grace. And somehow Judah thought, like, oh, we're free to do as we like. We can be unfaithful to the covenant, and we can still have these blessings. And God said, uh, uh, no, it doesn't work like that. But that's why the disciples now, they lost the throne, they lost the kingdom. And so the disciples were saying to Christ after his resurrection, oh, is this the time that you're going to restore the throne of, the throne of David, the throne of Israel? Because they know it's a forever throne. Okay, Jeremiah 31. Now we come to the new covenant. The new covenant, and the question is, is this about grace or is this about law? Because we're new covenant Christians. So are we all about grace or law? Because so far we've seen all the covenants are all about grace. There's no such thing as a relationship with God based on law. The foundation of our relationship with God is grace. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. And we saw in Hebrews, when he says new, that makes the other one old. And it's, it's the Mosaic covenant that's old, not the Abrahamic. This is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant as the Mosaic failed to do. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the Mosaic covenant that I made with their fathers. This is not the Abrahamic, this is the Mosaic, that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which we saw was based on grace, which my covenant they broke. They're the ones who were unfaithful to the covenant. 
although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Notice, with Israel. New covenant is with Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. The old covenant was based on grace. And based on that grace, God said, if you obey my laws, then I'm going to bless you this way. That's, that, that's the covenant. They broke it. They were unfaithful. So God says, you know what? I'm going to do this again. I'm going to make a new covenant with Israel. But this time, I'm going to put my laws in their hearts. Last time I wrote it on stone and said, obey this. This time I'm going to write it in their hearts. So is this covenant a covenant of grace or law? You can say I'm a legalist because you're a new covenant Christian and it's all about grace. Well, it seems to me that all the covenants are all about grace and they're all about law because God has a lifestyle, a way of living that he wants us to adopt. I will write it in their hearts and finally I will be their God and they shall be my people. Quickly go to Titus 2 and compare this new covenant Compare this new covenant with the old covenant. Remember in the old covenant, he said, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. And you shall be a kingdom of priests. In Titus 2, he says, for the grace, this is grace, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, it's not just Israel. It's all men. What, what does the grace of God teach us? Does the grace of God teach us once saved, always saved? Is that what we learn from the grace of God? Because that's certainly what these pastors are teaching. That the grace of God is all about once saved, always saved, and, and our sins don't move God one way or the other. Okay, is that the message? Okay, I'm reading the Bible now. I'm going to compare what the Bible says. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodly works and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Is this about grace or law? Basically, we're given the Holy Spirit so we can keep the law. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, the finished work of Christ. He gave himself for us. Why? That he might redeem us from what? From all iniquity. Our evil works. He's redeeming us from our evil works. And to purify unto himself a peculiar people. Zealous for good works. That's the very thing that he wanted to do in the first place with the Mosaic Covenant. And now we come with the New Covenant and it's the very same thing. He wants a peculiar people that are zealous for good works. Okay, I'm going to just wrap up now. Um, you can just jot these scriptures down. Uh, turn, turn with me uh, if you like. But I just want to go through them fairly quickly. Uh, and then we can have a bit of discussion. First of all, when we say once saved, always saved. If that is true, then there will never be an example in the scripture of somebody who was once saved and then lost. Because if there's even one example of someone who was saved and then lost, that's obviously a false doctrine. So look at Colossians. 
We're going to just see a counterexample here of once saved, always saved. Colossians 4 and verse 14. Uh, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae and says, Luke, the beloved physician. So Luke was the beloved physician. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. He accompanied Paul on many of his journeys. It looks like he was also one of the elders in Philippi. He's the only Gentile that wrote in the New Testament or anywhere in the Bible. Uh, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So Paul is writing to the church, to the Colossian church, and both Luke and Demas are greeting the church in Colossae. Second Timothy, compare this now to Second Timothy. Second Timothy 4. So Paul has in his party Luke. He's also got Demas. They're greeting the, 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 the Colossian Christians. And now he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10. Notice this. For Demas has forsaken me. Demas was a co-worker. Demas was working side by side with me and Luke. We were preaching the gospel. We were gaining converts. He was part of the winning party. And now he has, dep- he has forsaken me. Why? Having loved this present world, he was seduced by this present world and is departed unto Thessalonica. This was one of the co-workers with Paul. And he's he's, he's forsaken Paul. Why? He was seduced by this present world. We're going to say our works don't matter. Sin hardens the heart. Sin hardens the heart. Sin hardens the heart. And then it's easy to be seduced. Okay. James 5.19. I'm going to go quickly. James 5.19. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him. So I've erred from the truth, and you convert me back. Let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way. So there is an error of your way. Your works do matter. If you convert a sinner from the error of his way, shall save a soul from death. And shall hide a multitude of sins. In other words, that soul was not heading to salvation. That soul was heading to death. And you stepped in, you intervened, and you saved them. They were saved. They obtained salvation. They're part of the community. But they were heading to death. And you stepped in and intervened. It's not once saved, always saved. Romans 11, verse 19. You will say then, the branches were broken off. That's the Jews that I might be grafted in. I'm a Gentile. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. That's why the Jews were broken off. They didn't believe. Christ came, and they didn't believe. And so they were broken off. That's why they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be high-minded, but fear. If you're saved, once saved, always saved, what do you have to fear? Don't be high-minded. They were broken off. They were God's people. And they were broken off because of unbelief. You stand by your faith. Do not be high-minded. Fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not you. 
You can say, God can't be moved by my good works and he can't be moved by my bad works. Uh, God is the unmoved mover. No, God is a person. God has feelings. God wants a relationship. And how you behave matters to him. He's not a force that's impersonal. If God spared not the natural branches, you take heed, lest he also spare not you. Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward you goodness, if conditional. So on the Jews there was severity, on you the Gentiles there's goodness. The goodness is conditional. It's not a free ride. Conditional goodness. What you do it impacts God. There's a relationship here. There's a relationship. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also shall be cut off. Speaking to the covenant community. You're in the covenant community. Severity towards them that have been cut off. You stand by faith. Toward them, severity. Toward you, goodness, if you continue in the faith. Otherwise, you also shall be cut off. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, your works do matter. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the spirit mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Your works matter. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing good works seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. This, this, is, this is what satisfies the conditions to be granted eternal life. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if we are just as evil as the day is long and we're given eternal life? Is this logical? Does this make any sense? To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But, this is the opposite, Unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, evil works, on them indignation and wrath. Indign- this is speaking about the Christian community. This is speaking about the Christian community. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 22. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? The Lord can be provoked. Are we stronger than him? Do we think we can provoke him and, and he can't overpower us? But I keep my body, Paul speaking, I keep my body, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. I would say when I read the scriptures, if there's anybody that impresses me in the scriptures, it's the Apostle Paul, of course, after Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you know what? I'm at risk. I'm preaching the truth. But I could lose my salvation. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles come up with this freaky religion that's based on Greek philosophy that says once saved, always saved. And the author of their religion, where they get this from, is the apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, I could lose my salvation. 2 Peter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace, here's grace, 
Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that calls us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, virtue knowledge, knowledge temperance, temperance patience, patience godliness, godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if, if, it's conditional, it's not a free pass, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, here's the opposite. So if these things abound in you, you're good. Here's the opposite. He that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. We, we need to be purged from our old sins and never forget. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. In other words, your calling and election does not have to be sure. You have to give diligence to make sure that your calling and election are sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fail. But if you don't do these things, you shall fail. And verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. But grace and works go together. Grace, grace is how God initiates the relationship Works are the condition that God expects from us. Very quickly, Galatians 6, He that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. If we faint not. Uh, Philippians 2, we're familiar with Philippians 2.12, where he tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And then 1 Corinthians 15.2, uh, by which also you are saved, you're saved by this teaching, if, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you've believed in vain. So it's possible that you've believed in vain. It means nothing. But if you keep what I've taught you, uh, you'll continue. So believe it or not, I wanted to go through the entire uh, chapter of Hebrews 12 because it's relevant, but I've, I've run out of time. So I'll, I'll stop here and we'll leave. We're doing the study of Hebrews, so we will get to Hebrews 12. I was hoping I could slip it in uh, in the study today because it's totally relevant. Let me see if I can just pull maybe one verse from this. No, I won't. Yes, I will. No, I won't. <laughs> Okay, let's stop there. So, so brethren, um, this is a very, very dangerous doctrine. And, and we saw where one of the parishioners actually came to understand that he could commit mass murder and still go to heaven because that's what the teaching does. Now, if it goes to that extent, you can imagine all the other evil that's taking place in, in these congregations where they're being taught your works don't matter. And when we line that up against the scripture, this is a counterfeit grace. That this is not the grace of God. The grace of God is in his covenants. And the foundation of the covenants is grace. So I'll, I'll just kind of leave it uh, open now. We'll uh, answer any questions or comments.
that you might have or, or a clarification. Let me get there. This is the one on, on works. Yeah, he was talking about the works of the flesh. Yes. And they mentioned the well in verse twenty two it says, But the fruit of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And if we have the Holy Spirit, we should have these mm-hmm. attributes. Yes. Peace, love, suffering, goodness, and, and all that. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions. In other words, when we learn of the waters of baptism, the old man Turn with me to Romans 7. <clears throat> Romans 7 and beginning in verse 15. So this is, this is the Apostle Paul who has been converted. He's actually communed with Christ. He had his conversion on the road to Damascus. And now he's writing to the Romans. And he's saying, beginning in verse 15, for that which I do, I don't allow. So I'm an apostle and I tell people, you cannot do this. I don't allow it. For what I would, I don't do that. But what I hate, that's what I do. He's been baptized. The old man has died. He's baptized others. There's behaviors that he's seeing and he's telling people, you're not allowed to do that. And the very thing that he's telling people you're not allowed to do, he's doing Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will, this is coming from the Spirit now, the Holy Spirit, to will is present with me. I I do want to do God's will. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would do not, for the good that I would, I do not, But the evil, which I would not, that's what I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So the believer, the the journey of the believer, is when we are baptized and we covenant with God and we receive his Holy Spirit, we, we are entering a war, a personal battle. That's why, we, that's why Christ says, he that overcomes. That the sin nature doesn't just disappear when we come out of the water. We have to battle it for the rest of our lives, and we have to subdue it. And he that overcomes will sit in the throne with Christ, just as he overcame and sits in his Father's throne. So Hebrews 12, let's go to Hebrews 12. 
These are the brethren, and I love Hebrews, and we're going to talk about Hebrews later today. I love Hebrews because this is the Apostle Paul. We're very, very certain he's the writer, as the Apostle to the Gentiles. But here we find this book in the New Testament, which grounds us in true religion. You, I mean, you can take your Greek philosophy and twist the scriptures all over the place. You're going to have difficulty with Hebrews because this is a Hebrew speaking to Hebrews about true religion. And so here in Hebrews 12, where they're about to defect, he says here, you have not yet, verse 4, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So, yeah, you're striving against sin, but you haven't had to shed blood yet. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. And so this is your question, Ray, and it's a good question. Despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. Why? For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every man, every son whom he receives. So we still have this sin nature that we're struggling against. We give into it. He, if he loves us, he's going to chasten us. And we should accept that. He's a loving father. If you endure, if, again, this conditional phrase, it's not guaranteed that you will. Because here the apostle is worried that the Hebrew brethren are going to defect. So if you endure chastening. Then God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, in other words, you won't accept it. Whereof all are partakers. So every believer is chastised by God. Then you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and lift and live? For they verily, our physical fathers, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. So that's the whole point is God wants us to partake in his holiness. We're going astray. We're struggling like the Apostle Paul. He will chastise us. Why? He wants us to partake in the holiness. Now, verse 11. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous. It's grievous. And what you're about to go through, Hebrews, yes, it's grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Not everybody's exercised by it. But those who allow themselves to be exercised by it, you're going to see the fruit of righteousness. Therefore... Therefore, verse 12, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight the paths for your feet. Get your act together, in other words. Stop with this nonsense. Sort yourself out. Why? Lest, verse 13, make, your straight, make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. So yeah, you're going to be chastised. Suck it up. Deal with it. Why? Because it will yield peaceable fruit of righteousness. But if you're going to stay lame, if you're going to stay weak, you know what? Here's what's going to happen to you. You true believers, 
Lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. It is possible to fail of the grace of God. So you look diligently so you do not fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, your works matter. So you make sure you sort yourself out unless you slip into fornication or become a profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. And you can be rejected. And he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For you are not come unto the mount that it might be touched. You have not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. So they were so frightened. They didn't want this. This is the, the glory that God spoke to them with. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thus thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Moses was terrified. But, so, so, so that's the mount that they came to. You are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and, the God, and, to, the God, and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. This is what you've come to. See that you refuse him not that speaks. Because you've come to something greater. And if they didn't escape who refused him that spoke from heaven, from earth, on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. And so that's the whole pattern in the book of Hebrews. If you think this was something, well, Christ is greater. You thought that was great? Well, Christ is greater. That's the whole theme of the book of Hebrews. So if when God spoke on earth and they disobeyed and he crushed them, how much more, true believer, will you be crushed if God extends his mercy to you, chastises you, and you turn away? For if they escaped not, verse 25, see that you refuse him not that speaks. For if they escaped not, who refused him that spoke on earth, much more shall not we escape if we true believers turn away from him that speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, the kingdom cannot be moved, let us have grace. This is the grace we want, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence 
and godly fear. We serve God with godly fear. Why? The last verse. For our God is a consuming fire. That This is a serious business we're in. He's a consuming fire. And when we stray, when the old man stirs up, we will be chastised. But we have to accept the chastisement so that the fruit of righteousness can come forward. If it doesn't, if we allow our hearts to harden like Esau, our God is a consuming fire. And I think that's very, very clear. Brother Larry. Very good. And, and it's very, very true. It's a family relationship. God, God is a, our father. Very good. Very good. Very good. All right. So, brethren, why don't we conclude there and we'll take a break. And really the, the fundamental message here, brethren, is, is what we do matters. That there are conditions that we must satisfy. And uh, sin hardens the heart. So if we start dabbling in sin, uh, that's a dangerous path to go down. So we're going to serve God with godly fear. And in our private lives, we're building righteousness. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.com dot org.